There is design back of the technological world we live in. Somebody made choices to make our world the way it is, and we should think harder about what those choices are and who made them. In the early 1800s, as the legend goes, a young apprentice from the English town of Nottingham took up residence in the nearby Sherwood Forest after having been deprived of his vocation by the avarice of his superiors. Not one to give up easily, he became an inspiration to other castaways, urging them to commit crimes in the name of justice. His name was Ned Ludd, and his supporters called themselves the Luddites. Today, the Luddites plan to stop the spread of technology by destroying textile machines is routinely cited as proof of both the inevitability of innovation as well as the short-sightedness of anyone who might voice skepticism or urge caution as we hurtle further into our brave new world. But the question of how we allow technology to govern our behavior has never been as important as it is today. How much of your life is governed by the technology that surrounds you? Not just the device you're using to listen to this podcast, but in the clothes that you wear, the food you eat, or the ways you get around. And how much of a voice do you have in how these technologies govern you? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is HKS professor Sheila Jasanoff, who's been a pioneer in exploring the role of science and technology in democracy. Her recent book is The Ethics of Invention, Technology in the Human Future. Professor, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Matt. Glad to be here. How did you become interested in this subject in particular? It's been a long-standing interest of mine, how technology interacts with society. It goes back to um, when, as an environmental lawyer, I had to go to uh, a small college town, upstate New York, Cornell in Ithaca, where there was no opportunity for me to practice environmental law. So instead, I became attached to a program on science, technology, and society, and that was completely by happenstance. But once I landed there, uh, it felt uh, important to try to figure out what there was to say about science, technology, and society. And in effect, that one sort of accidental transition from Cambridge to Ithaca set the course of a lifetime. I think uh, we often think of technology as an instrument or a tool um, that is uh, used to achieve something. But it seems like from your perspective, it's really, it's more than that. Technology itself uh, has, has its own way of impacting the way we make choices. Yeah, I think that's a very nice way to put it. Um, I'd like to pick up on a couple of points that you've made that I think really bear on the book. So one is the point you made about how pervasive technology is and how unconscious we are about the role of technology in our lives. One way these days that we're unconscious is that when you say technology, people tend to think of only one thing. They think of computers and they think of IT and the electronic and digital medium. Now, that's incredibly important. But one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to remind people that they are surrounded by technology in all kinds of different forms. This is why I talk about the transition in my own Kennedy School years from living near a traffic intersection that once didn't have a traffic light and now has a traffic light. So those kinds of very mundane things that are all around us, we don't question. And yet the second thing is that um, again, you mentioned this, the technology actually has a governing power over our lives, and we don't stop to think about that 
either. I mean, you know, who asks themselves, well, what regulates the temperature of the water in a coffee pot? And when the coffee comes out, is it going to be so hot that it's going to sort of scald our fingers through the material of the cup or not? Mm-hmm. Um, but somebody made that choice. It was a design choice. Uh, and it has consequences. So if we think that the coffee cup is very hot and need an extra paper sleeve to make the takeaway cup be bearable to our hands, that has environmental consequences down the line. There's extra material that went into it. You know, So there are all these sort of very uh, everyday things. I mean, everybody's going into Starbucks and taking a coffee cup away, but they're not thinking about the background choices that went into the making of those things. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book is to alert people to the fact that there is design back of the technological world we live in. Somebody made choices to make our world the way it is, and we should think harder about what those choices are and who made them. Mm-hmm. It seems like, in uh, just to draw on the example of the the coffee pot, I mean, we think of different uh, agencies out there that uh, have governed that. Beyond the design, you have, uh, you know, you have some kind of regulation, perhaps some kind of case law from the legal system, and on top of that, you have the free market, presumably, to, uh, you know, if if you're making water that's too hot or too cold, then you know it's not going to sell. Um, so. So uh, how do all these things, uh, technology, again, going back to this idea of technology as like the implementation of those larger forces, it's, it seems like it's, a, it's rethinking that and putting technology in the context of those, of those other forces. Yeah, again, you've put it beautifully. Um, of course, I'm working in a school of government, and that is one of the things that I think about. Um, one of the mistaken ideas that people have is that there is all this regulation all over the place. Uh, sometimes when I teach a course on science and law, I'm going to be teaching one again quite soon, uh, I get people to pick up a random object around them, whether it's their backpack or a pencil or a laptop, and ask them to think about how it got regulated, what are the different ways it got regulated, and what isn't regulated. It's it's quite an eye-opening exercise. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, the regulation part of it is just a very thin veneer, very little of what we experience is actually regulated by government. There's some kind of measure that of all of the standards that apply to technological objects, more than 95% of them are set voluntarily through industrial codes of different sorts. Mm-hmm. So government comes in only to regulate a very thin spectrum of or piece of the spectrum of all of the stuff that's out there. Mm-hmm. So then we rely on the market to do a lot of things. But, you know, in these days when we go about buying things from Amazon, you know what a pain it is to actually have to return things. I mean, so anybody who's ever bought an object that turned out to be a lemon knows that, yes, in principle, the market corrects itself. But um, I hope that when people read the book, they will realize that even the delivery of the object to your house is itself a technological system. Uh, and especially if we're thinking about crowding the air with drones that are going to deliver <laughs> everything from pizza to toilet paper, you know, we mm-hmm. have to start thinking about uh, just the, again, the very complex systemic ways 
in which things get from a point of design, a point of origin, to a point of use, and then onward to a point of recycling or disposal or what have you. And at each of those steps, there is some governance involved. And we should be asking who's doing that. In this country, we tend to get carried away by deregulatory fervor and think the government is everywhere. Uh, as a trained lawyer who's been working on environmental regulation, teaching and writing about it for a very long time, uh, the thing I've come to realize and that I try to get across to my students is just how small a piece of the entire game ever comes within the purview of governments. Hmm. I like that you brought up uh, the traffic regulation because uh, I think the example that you went with in your book was uh, you know tra the traffic light, at, and I kind of presumed it was the one at uh, the corner of JFK Street and Elliott Street. I thought it was really uh, a great example, especially in Boston, where uh, pedestrians, although there is a law against jaywalking, I believe the do the fine is one dollar. <laughs> uh, I didn't even know that we had that law. It is. California is very rigid in enforcing its it, laws. It's slightly less. I, I believe it, it goes up to $2 after five uh, violations in a given year. Uh, so, um, but that's that's illustrative of the kind of the way we approach uh, traffic in in this city, we've we've in, in pedestrians in particular. Uh, it's more of it's a we, constitutional right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. But although there are rules, um, we see them as more suggestions than rules. It feels like a very good example of like the the regulated versus deregulated economy or, or of sorts. So I'll put in a pitch first of all for teaching that some of the most mundane examples are often the ones that get across to people because they haven't thought about them and yet they can easily grasp the fact that, for instance, there's nothing God-given about the way in which red, yellow, and green are stacked up against each other in a traffic light. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I once read a historical article about how that arrangement of lights got standardized. And apparently, there was a time in Mao's China when they were thinking of having the red serve as the green because it was the revolutionary color. <laughs> and then the world's standardization pressures actually overcame this internal urge and they adopted the same traffic light coding system as anybody else. But uh, even within that, of course, you can have the lights themselves can be different. They can have strobe effects or not. They can be um, programmed to be on some of the time and off some of the time. And always and everywhere, there is this complex interconnection between whatever the designers had in mind and how users go about using it. So that's another dimension of the technology uh, complex that I think we need to think about. And that It's not that there is technology, it's made, it has functions, and it has uh, safety uh, requirements built into it and potential for helping us or not helping us. It's that the hardware of technology and the software of technology are always bound up together. And we could think of ourselves and our brains and our habits as being very much part of that software. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the jaywalking point in Boston and or in the in Cambridge even more because it's a college town and people do things a little bit differently. But that's an example of where people have tacit rules that they follow and they follow, they learn it by watching what other people are doing. Uh, if you were in Germany, 
Germans are socialized to think that it is really almost bordering on sin to cross against the traffic light. And one of the things they're taught is that they would be setting a very bad example for children. And even when there are no children anywhere in sight, this sort of early precept that they're taught actually takes over and governs. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, we are a more laissez-faire country in these respects <laughs> and, and we behave differently. But I think the general point is that if we talk about technological systems, it's actually quite risky to forget that the system has its human components that are operating everything else in the system and are being operated on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the technology today, you mentioned, you know, our minds, or we go to computers, those those kinds of things. Uh, obviously, the internet is incredibly uh, pervasive throughout all of our lives now. Um, but if you look at what the internet is, uh, it is a massively decentralized network with, uh, you know, standards bodies that are not elected uh, with, uh, you know, driven by forces that are really not regulated by any kind of democratic means. Is that a problem that we have embraced a system that is not answerable to the larger society? Well, I think it's always a problem to have any kind of system that's not answerable to us, whether it's a democracy or the kind of democracy that masquerades as technology. Um, I think that the role of the federal government is curious in the development of the internet because if it hadn't been for the Defense Department and defense spending, uh, the internet would not have come into being. And we we often forget that kind of initiating role Mm -hmm. of the federal government, particularly with respect to what are called dual-use technologies, things that are developed for military purposes but then are taken over for civilian purposes. And I think that that slippage is something that we ought to be more conscious of anyway. That is, what kinds of design choices or or presumptions got built into these technological systems that were originally developed under presumptions of secrecy and then become more ubiquitous. And I think the drone will be very interesting to follow because Mm. it's another of these technologies that that had its start in a military context. Mm -hmm. But as far as the democratic ambition of the internet is concerned, I mean, of course, we all benefit from it enormously. Um, There are, I mean, these days, things that I used to rack my brains about, you know, trying to remember where I found something. I can stick something into Google and and nine times out of ten, it'll pop up. Mm -hmm. But one then also tends to forget that there are pockets of huge, uh, almost imperial control in the Internet. And these days when one is hearing a lot about things like fake news, uh, it's become clear that there is a flip side to the um, um, the openness that we all prize to some extent. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I had uh, a meeting here on um, science blogging and whether the blogosphere encourages um, misrepresentations of science. Um, looking back on it, it seems quite prescient to me. The person I co-organized it with is Chris Mooney, who was at that time writing expose reports about um, the misuse of science, uh, in part through governmental collusion, actually. 
Um, but I think back to that program, and I wish that the some of the discussion of that program had fed back into uh, the the uh, data oligarchs of the internet and the private party regulators of the internet, because mm -hmm. some of the things people were saying about scientific information came back to bite us during the 2016 presidential election when it was not just about scientific misinformation, but about misinformation writ large. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to have to take a deep breath and rethink how open is this openness, or is it open to all kinds of purposes, and we need to come in and begin checking some of those purposes. Welcome to the post-fact world. <laughs> uh, there has been a lot uh, spoken about, written about, uh, about Facebook in particular. Um, it is uh, a behemoth. It is um, immediately answerable to one man, it turns out, and Mark Zuckerberg. He has a controlling interest in the corporation. Um, and uh, while the internet that we have known and loved for the last 20, 30 years um, has been fundamentally an open one. Uh, the Facebook world, uh, well, at least it's been open since AOL kind of went went away. Um, Facebook is more of a closed system, um, and uh, the it, it comprises much of our civil discourse, and it... it 2016 certainly proved how easy it is to, uh, you know, poison that well uh, with unverified um, information. Um, if the internet has always been about openness, um, and now data has has become collected into these closed systems, um, what is what does that mean for us as a society, as democracies, um, as citizens in in a society? Yeah, that's a huge question. I think it should be at the center of some of the things that we think about in the Kennedy School because it is a governance question. Um, stepping back, one has to keep in mind that there always were phenomena of misinformation being circulated and two kinds of things I think deserve to be mentioned explicitly. One is conspiracy theories and the other is urban legends. Uh, so, you know, people have believed all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, the um, and you know on major events like the JFK assassination, for instance, the conspiracy theories likely will never go away. So here is where I would like to step back into my dis and put on my disciplinary hat of science and technology studies mm -hmm. in that field, which looks at the social and political dimensions of science and technology. One of the issues that that scholars in the field have always asked is what makes a scientific claim reliable. I mean, I'm sure you believe that DNA has the structure of a double helix. But if anybody said to you, why do you believe this? It probably isn't because you yourself did the experiments or understand the chemistry that led Watson and Crick to come up with the double helix structure as the more reliable and not the triple helix, which some people were talking about back then. 
Mm-hmm. You needed. I'm sure that neither of us has any mastery of X-ray crystallography, which was kind of essential to give a, a picture of what the molecule of DNA looked like. And yet we believe it. We believe it because we got it through our biology textbooks. We believe it because reliable people tell us that's how things are. We believe it because it's become popularized in logos everywhere that show us, you know, heredity mm-hmm. equals this thing. So. All of that, which has long been noticed in the field of STS, leads people to think that institutions are important and trust is important, that you end up believing a set of things because of the transmission line. Somebody actually did those experiments out there, but those places that do the experiments and that propagate the results have to have credibility. For science, it's a very long chain of credibility. So the labs themselves are certified. Somebody peer-reviewed the proposals on the basis of which people got the grants. I mean, to the extent that my research enterprise is carried out on federal money, I know I have to go out there and compete and get my NSF grant. I can't just propose to study any old thing and get funded to do it. So from that very beginning, there are filters set up to ensure that things don't go wrong, that something plausible is being done. Then articles are peer-reviewed. Then people replicate the experiments by building on them in effect, and eventually people turn the science into technology. So there's this very complicated pathway by which we end up saying we believe X. What has happened in the internet era, though, is that the possibility of transmitting has increased, has exploded. I mean, so one no longer needs to go through these heavily certified channels Mm -hmm. in order to get information out. And as a result, the the kinds of you know carefully crafted filters that we had between a claim and its uptake by us as reliable fact that has worn thin that seems a very scary uh, <laughs> uh, future for us one question you asked in your book was about the is our legacy institutions capable of regulating uh, the future technology that governs our world? Um, uh, do we have to rethink the way that we process information on a larger scale? I mean, in a way, the book is a, an invitation to rethink the world from the ground up, which is a very uh, large burden to place <laughs> on any society. But uh, I think that we are in a political moment in democratic societies where that need is very urgent Mm -hmm. because it seems as though some of the presumptions that grew up around democracy from the beginning of the Enlightenment just are not working. I mean, so the presumption was that knowledge would get better and better, it would be more and more widely diffused, people would be making more and more rational decisions, there would be more and more forums in which reasoned argument would prevail and emotions wouldn't carry the day. And I think that we can point not only in our country, but around the more technologically advanced societies to many examples suggesting that the system just is not working in that in that way. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, my training remains in law, in administrative process and government and in science and technology studies. So one of the things I'm interested in is what are the barriers? I mean, I think the sort of 
instead of saying, can we reform anything and everything, it's somehow more concrete to ask, where are the barriers? Um, one of the things I argue in my book is that one of the barriers is right upstream in the technological process where the design decisions are made. And to the extent that your characterization of Facebook, for instance, is right, that it is a closed system, then one needs to go back and ask, well, what sort of controls should there be? One of the you know, almost myths that we've swallowed whole is that we cannot have um, good innovation without uh, getting rid of regulation in the first place. Um, I suspect it's a much more cyclical kind of process. Uh, there were eras before in U.S. history as well when technologies were allowed to just run amok and we had to rein them in. So one of these is industrial revolution. It turned out that we could not let industry proceed without controls. For one thing, workers were dying on the job. And eventually, at the turn of the cent previous century, Massachusetts became a leader in saying that this was not a way things could go on. And we enacted workers' compensation laws. And I'm happy to be living in a state where it was recognized that there was a need for a different kind of recalibration of the public-private relationship. So there, you know, I would like people to do things like pick up a pencil or look at a traffic light and get to the point where they're rethinking the principles of democracy, the founding principles of we the people and who is representing us. And is it in fact true that entrepreneurs should be given complete leeway? I think looking at the detailed history of the internet, for instance, suggests that a lot of innovation actually happens in these very closed governmentally controlled spaces. The story of the bomb is obviously one such, the story of the Apollo mission. Mm -hmm. The government has actually been behind some of the major technological breakthroughs of our time and some other ones like, you know, do we want the East Coast Corridor, for instance, to be con to be tied together by a different and better train service? That's not something that's going to come about from some entrepreneur deciding that they're going to do it. The big dig in Boston didn't come about. Maybe, maybe not the best. Uh. <laughs> well, it, it's not the best example in terms of cost overruns, but then we should be thinking of cost overruns. Mm -hmm. A private developer would not have gone ahead and undertaken that sure. massive a project to alter the the you know underground structure of an entire city. Mm -hmm. So I think that the public-private partnership idea, uh, you know, the, we even in the Kennedy School just uh, abbreviated into three Ps. But uh, my research suggests, first of all, that it's not just public-private, but public-private and technological, so maybe it's PPTP, <laughs> and that those lines should not be assumed as given, that mm -hmm. what we delegate to the private sector, what is properly government's responsibility, these are things that we should be thinking about all over again. Well, the book is The Ethics of Invention, Technology, and the Human Future. Uh, Professor Sheila Jasanoff, thank you so much for joining us today. Really fascinating discussion. Again, it was my pleasure to be here. Thank you. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. This episode was produced by Matt Cadwallader and edited by Jacob Beiser. Natalie Montana is our guest wrangler. Sarah Abrams, our sage advisor. And Becky Wickle, our digital attache. 
Send us your comments and questions to policycast at hks.harvard.edu or on Twitter at policycast. And subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.